In the name of God, the holy and undivided Trinity. Amen. Amen. Six days later begins our gospel for this morning. The revised common lectionary goes on to say, later than what? After Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. But in fact, the lectionary editor is summarizing so that we here at church will know what the verse refers to and the summary is incomplete and may be misleading if you don't know the story very well. In the passage before this one, Peter has indeed, with a burst of inspiration, responded to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, with this confession of faith. Jesus blesses him and affirms that he, or maybe the confession, is the rock upon which the community will be built. But then Jesus tells the disciples what his mission actually involves, great suffering and being killed at the hands of religious and imperial powers, and most confusing of all, being raised on the third day. Peter, you will recall, recoils at this and tells Jesus, this must never happen to you. To which Jesus replies in very strong language, get behind me, Satan. He then goes on to say that anyone who wants to be a disciple must take up their own cross and come with him, ready to lose their life in order to find it. This is the backdrop of the ascent up the Mount of Transfiguration. This story is in all the Synoptic Gospels, and we hear it every year at the end of Epiphany. Each writer tells it with some individual touches. Only Matthew mentions the specificity of six days following Peter's confession and its tumultuous aftermath. Perhaps in doing so, Matthew is making a connection to the narrative from Exodus, which was our first reading for today. In it, Moses also goes up a mountain where he will meet with God and receive the law. He too encounters the divine mystery in a cloud where he remains for six days before he is called forth to receive the Torah beginning on the seventh day. There are rich echoes here, the six days of creation, the divine rest and completion on the seventh, invoking the creative power of the word by which the world is made and the people are to live. The cloud has guided them out of slavery in Egypt all the way to the holy mountain. It is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night radiant and obscuring at the same time. We may remember that Matthew is particularly interested in showing Jesus as a new Moses, not a replacement, but a trustworthy interpreter and fulfillment of the tradition. And the prophet Elijah, too, will appear shortly. Like Moses, he is great among the ancestors another one 
who brought both liberation and judgment to the people, who met God on a mountain as a still, small voice, and then later ascended into heaven in a fiery chariot. Together, these two represent the law and the prophets, the great traditions of Israel. And Matthew shows Jesus as their heir and collaborator. Matthew also especially likes mountains. Important events in his gospel often occur in the heights. Jesus' temptation occurs in part on a mountain. His most famous sermon, of course, is preached on the mount. Healings and other teachings are set on mountains, and at the very end of the gospel, the risen Jesus will call his followers to a mountain in Galilee, and from there send them out to the whole world to preach the gospel. He will promise to be with them always as they go from that place. In many traditions, mountains are places where heaven and earth touch and the veil between the worlds is thin. Rarefied air induces an altered state. Clouds roll in and we lose our ordinary senses and sight. This geography may not speak to everyone, but the image of mountaintop experiences evokes heightened awareness of God, holiness, wonder, and change. So the atmosphere is thick with meaning as Jesus leads his friends up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus often went off by himself to pray. It touches me that this time he brings these three with him, including Peter, with all his insight and all his resistance, like so many of us. He was transfigured before them, says Matthew. This is a profound epiphany, a manifestation, a seeing of who Jesus is that is deeper, different, dazzling. Seeing what is really real at the heart of things. The imagery is light, radiant, shining like the sun. How do we talk about glory, about numinous presence and divine energy, except through metaphor? The transfiguration reveals all that, and in its light, much more is seen. Moses and Elijah appear, and they talk with Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us what they're talking about, unlike Luke, who says that it is about Jesus' departure, which is to say his passion and death. And once again, there are echoes of Moses' experience on Sinai. After he had spoken with God, his face shone so that the people were afraid to come near him. He veiled his face when he was with them to shield them from the lingering naked power of that encounter, that mystery of God. It's good for us to be here, Peter blurts out, and he makes his offer to build three dwellings there on the mountain. Usually this gets interpreted as yet another example of Peter's cluelessness. 
But one commentator I read suggests that maybe, rather than trying to control the uncontrollable or pin it down permanently, maybe Peter is trying to honor this remarkable encounter. Could he be offering hospitality, a temporary resting place, a shelter for this wilderness journey with a God who is always on the move? How, in fact, do we cherish our most foundational, precious experiences of the holy? How do we honor our connection with saints and ancestors? Seeking to aid my memory, I have certainly taken a rock or a photo, a keepsake or a carefully repeated telling of the story. Peter is interrupted by the overshadowing cloud, bright but obscuring, like a whiteout, a sudden blizzard high in the peaks, a shining fog so thick you can't see your hand in front of your face. The cloud is the presence of the God of the Exodus, the God of Sinai, the God of the prophets. From it, a voice speaks the same words that are addressed from heaven to Jesus at his baptism. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It is the voice, not the dazzling radiance of the transfiguration, not the uncanny appearance of the ancestors, nor even the overshadowing of the cloud, but hearing the voice that strikes such terror in the three disciples that they fall to the ground in fear. Why is that, do you suppose? Maybe hearing makes vivid an otherwise unimaginable presence. Maybe the words communicate a creative power and energy that calls them to respond. Though they have named Jesus as chosen of God, perhaps this claiming, this declaration of belovedness is hard to take in because it implies that they too somehow are God's beloved. Maybe in the call to listen, they are reminded of the things they have already heard Jesus say that are hard to understand and even harder to accept. All of it is just so paradoxical. Glory and suffering, cherishing and vulnerability. They are undone anyway. They're flat on the ground. But Jesus comes to them. He touches them. I imagine that touch, so human, so familiar, grounds them and brings them somehow back into their bodies. Theologian Eric Barreto calls it compassionate, healing, courage-inducing touch. And Jesus speaks to them. In our translation, he says, get up and do not be afraid. But a more accurate rendering would be, be raised. The word translated, get up, is the same one the messengers at the tomb used to tell the bewildered women, he's not here, he has been raised. 
This foreshadowing of resurrection, this call to the disciples to participate with their own bodies and their courageous trembling hearts, not only in carrying their crosses, but also in being raised up anew. This is the pattern of Christian life. This is what it means to be baptized into Christ's death and resurrection and to follow Jesus in the way of discipleship. It is to join in small and enormous ways in the ministry and community of God's beloved. They don't understand, but they get up alone again with their friend and teacher. His touch and his words give them courage for the next steps, which will take them down the mountain into the struggling, suffering crowds, hungry and yearning for hope, for new life. Step by step, they will accompany Jesus towards the still unimaginable to them crisis that awaits. Jesus tells them not to talk about what they have experienced until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. That makes intuitive sense to me. Their experience on the mountain, their transfigured seeing and hearing, is alive in them. It's changing them. But they cannot possibly understand it at this moment. They probably barely have words to say what has happened to them. They have not only to listen, but to live into the next part of the story before they have anything real to say. The Transfiguration story marks the culmination of the Epiphany season, which has moved from the guiding light of a star above a stable to the radiant mystery revealed upon the mountain. The season is also framed by the affirmation of Jesus' identity and mission. You are my beloved child. And the message that we too are claimed as beloved, as light and salt, blessed and called to bear God's presence into the world and to recognize the depth of God's love for every member of creation. It's as if we are poised now at the top of the mountain on this Sunday Strengthened in that identity and vocation, we must now move into Lent, down from the mountain, into the shadowy valleys, to confront our mortality, our limits, and our failings, our complicity in the brokenness of the world. So what might we take with us from this story this morning? First, its very strangeness stirs me, and maybe you too, to remember when I have experienced God's numinous presence. Maybe not so dramatically, and maybe not on a mountaintop, although maybe so as well, in the utter wonder and wildness of creation. When have you, have I, found my vision opened the familiar transfigured, revealing the glory at the heart of things. Maybe it was in the midst of difficulty, the paradox of God with us in vulnerability and suffering and loss. Maybe the glory flashed 
in a person or a situation easy to overlook or dismiss. We don't always talk about such experiences, but I believe we do have them. How do they inform and nourish us? Second, this story reminds us of our connections to the saints and ancestors of our faith. Who would you like to talk to in a mystical encounter? Who do you carry with you in sanctified memory, even if you cannot always dwell with them as you make your way? Third, the story challenges us to bring our transfigured vision and our radical listening right into the suffering around us. Can we pick up the cross of our own lives and follow Jesus in this world with its unceasing gun violence, its war and hatred, police killings and racism, assault on our precious earth? How does the truth that we are God's beloved live in us? How does it change us? How does it help us see our neighbor with new eyes? How does it impel us to act in the face of all this brokenness, including our own? And how do we listen for God's call? And how do we help each other when we are overwhelmed, exhausted, or sick with fear? The story tells us that Jesus is with us when we are far, far outside our understanding or our comfort zone. And it points also to the power of touch, of embodied care for one another, of community that can be grounding, compassionate, healing, and courage-inducing, as well as deeply joyful. It confronts us with the, power, the promise of companionship and invites us to resurrection life. It says, be raised and do not be afraid. Amen.